You know that the scriptures say the eyes of the Lord roam to and fro throughout all the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. And we are always seeking after the Lord's heart that he might give us insight into who, who those people are that he strengthens because they are fully committed to him. Who are those individuals in our world who have a, a global heart, who have a passion for the message of Jesus Christ, who are disciple-making individuals? Several years ago, uh, I was put in touch with uh, a man by the name of Edmund Chan. I'd never met him before, but I was told that he was just that kind of man who had a big heart for Jesus Christ and had a big global vision. And um, I want to introduce to you today Reverend Edmund Chan, who is, the, who is uh, on the pastoral staff of the Covenant Evangelical Free Church of Singapore. Singapore is a city and a country and an amazing place, an equatorial place, a nice warm place. I've had the privilege of being there for a few days myself. Um, let me tell you a little bit about his church, just to give you a, a, a setting. 35 years ago, it began with 17 people. Today, they have over 5,000 people who worship the Lord in that church. And uh, Pastor Chan was senior pastor for 25 years uh, in that particular church. And recently, within the last few years, has uh, changed his role. His role is now leadership mentor. But here's the neat thing about that church. They have uh, um, retained him as a pastor on their staff and as a gift to the world. Half of his time is spent uh, going to different places in the world, Asia, Africa, the U.S., Canada, all over the world, building up the church of Jesus Christ, strengthening people in particular. His specialty is in discipleship ministries and the inner life. And uh, it couldn't have been a better and more divine appointment. It took over two years to get him here. I invited him, I think, January of 2014. And uh, what you need to know is he can't even, he can't say yes to all of the invitations. He prays about them. And so I truly believe that his appearance here today for us and for these next few days is a gift of God's grace to us and a gift of the Father's love that he would be willing to choose our church to have such an amazing international statesman who loves the Lord so much. So Reverend Chan, his wife Anne is with him. We are so delighted to welcome you to Calvary Baptist Church. Would you please give him a really warm welcome? I want to thank Pastor Rick for inviting me here and for his very kind introduction. You know, a good introduction is as fragrant as perfume. But just like perfume is meant to be sniffed a little, not meant to be swallowed. (laughs) I am but an unworthy servant of the Lord. I'm very thankful to be here. Uh, You must understand I'm, I'm from Singapore, sunny city near the equator, so I'm an equatorial creature. Coming here, this is freezing cold. <laughs> so I, I have to say, I'm God's chosen people becoming God's frozen. <laughs> but it is such a delight to be with you. I, I love the choir. It's fantastic. It's world class. And, and I, I was very tempted to import them to Singapore. A few years ago, my friend Ravi Zacharias invited me to his office in Atlanta 
to speak to his staff on discipleship. He was broadcast uh, globally in his international offices. In a private uh, meal together, uh, Ravi shared his passion about discipleship and put in perspective, when you have one of the most well-known, most articulate Christian apologists speaking passionately about discipleship, I said to Ravi, Ravi, could I have you on video, on record, sharing your heartbeat on discipleship? He very graciously did a three-minute uh, or so recording about his heart for discipleship, and I want to share it with you this morning. So if you're ready, let's screen this. Hi, this is Ravi Zacharias, and I'm talking to you on a day which has been very special to us here in our ministry in Atlanta. We've had the privilege of having Edmund and Ann Chan with us uh, to speak to our staff on the whole theme of discipleship and what is most important in your life and mine. You know, I'm now celebrating 42 years in ministry. You start off with a blaze and with the energy and the zeal and all that comes into your heart, your passion. It's all genuine, but oftentimes less informed than it needs to be. And while we crisscross the globe, cover venue after venue, we see results. We see people coming to Christ. Our hearts are thrilled and we keep going. And then you look back over the years and you say, what would you have done differently if you had a chance? And the question that often haunts me when I think of it that way is, why didn't we think of this sooner than we did? Yeah, we use terms like follow-up. We were aware of that. We do do follow-up. We do send literature and all that. But the call that Christ has given to us to make disciples is much more than the meager term of follow-up. It involves time. It involves interaction. It involves teaching. It involves the disciplines of the heart, the mind, your day-to-day -day walk, how that nearness with Christ is built. And uh, so there are two ends of the spectrum, from evangelism to discipleship, that are at this time, I think, in church history, both of them in great need of support, strength, and buttressing. I go into hostile campuses. I see the toughest ones of them actually end up many times giving ground, admitting that they really have not got the answers, and some of them then making that commitment to Christ. And then the question comes into my mind, now what? Where do we send them? And if you don't gain that momentum at that time, oftentimes you actually set them back farther than where they were when you first met them. I hope you followed what I've just said, because if they have that been there, done that feeling, and think it never, quote, worked, then you obviously know their understanding of the conversion experience has been shallow, and nobody was able to take them beyond that initial encounter of hearing the gospel. This is where I think Edmund Chan has just been a trailblazer, a unique voice in our time, and with his intentional move towards the churches that have to make discipleship intentional and programmatic and of the spirit, that vision that he's imparting, I think, to a global leaders is critical. And he does it on his own with individuals. I like the way what he describes the mentoring program, a sort of journeying together. The picture that comes to my mind when I hear him say that is the Emmaus Road walk. Jesus talking to the disciples, journeying together, retracing history, and then the breaking of the bread, and their eyes are open. Friends, I want to say this to you. 
We are living in some of the most treacherous times that are quite hostile to the gospel message. We not only need to present that gospel clearly, but then we need to be able to walk that long journey. Some of the finest minds in the world today are open to listening to the gospel, and those minds could be rescued to great advantage for the propagation of the gospel in the future if discipleship is done rightly. And I'm just thrilled to be a part of an encourager here and affirm what this ministry is doing in building those that are intentional discipleship-making discipleship churches. That is a call for our time, and it's a clarion call. I hope those of you who are even watching this will make it your life's mission, because it's a worthy cause and something to which our Lord has called all of us first in our own inner life to be in tune with him and then to multiply that attitude of heart with those whom we come into contact with who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ. God bless you. May you truly be a discipler. The world needs you to do that and needs the disciples to be there. God bless you. The crisis of discipleship today is a crisis of product. In other words, the question is not are we producing disciples? Rather, the question is, what kind of disciples are we producing? In the book of Galatians, the Apostle Paul speaks about a certain kind in his own testimony of the kind of life he has chosen to live. Turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 2, verse 2, a very familiar verse where the Apostle Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ live in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Would you bow with me in prayer as we ask the Lord to bless this time in the Word? Eternal God and Heavenly Father, let the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Whatever is not from you, please scatter them to the wind so that they fall of no effect. But those things that are from you, please deposit them deeply in our hearts and help us not just to be hearers of your word, but doers also, that we might grow thereby. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. In discipleship, we need to know what to be looking for. Story was told of a Top Gun pilot, graduated top in his class, the best of the best. He was so proud of his accomplishment, he told his girlfriend, come to the airfield and watch me fly. He jumped into his F-16 and did a vertical climb up to the skies and then turned the aircraft down, pummeled towards the earth. And just before it, it hit the ground, he, he lifted up again and then did some fantastic aerial somersaults, some twists and turns. It was the most fantastic display of aero acrobatics. And he came down for a perfect landing. He walked towards his girlfriend with full pride in his accomplishment. His girlfriend ran towards him, hugged him, and consoled him. Tom, it's all right. It's all right. The next time, you will be able to fly straight. <laughs> she missed it completely because she didn't know what to be looking for. In discipleship, we need clarity. We need to know exactly what we are to be looking for. Now, here's the question. 
if you were to design a discipleship training program in your church, what would you be looking for? How would you design it? I have served as a guest lecturer in the Deeming program for four seminaries, actually five now in three countries. And I say to the doctoral students in the first day of class, there are two words you've got to understand about discipleship and leadership. And the two words are, I can't. I can't. You can't. I can't. We can't. Why? Because in discipleship, it's not merely about a program we implement. Churches have tried implementing programs and then they find a critical discipleship deficit in the life of the church because there's a missing element. You see, my dear friends, there's a spiritual dimension in building the house of God. There is a spiritual power that is needed in the transformation of lives from the inside out. And that transformation of life from within, we can't do it. It is the holy work of God. That is why anyone who wants to embark on discipleship and disciple-making must enter it with a holy sense and a humility of prayer and dependence upon the Lord. When we work, we work. When we pray, God works. And that's exactly what we need in discipleship today. We need God to work because there are two kingdoms, four battlegrounds, we've got to understand. There's the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of Christ. And in between the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of Christ, there's a conflict in four battlegrounds. The first is the battleground for the family. I believe that when you build healthy families, you build healthy churches. It's not a matter about building the size of the church, the facilities, the budget, the staffing, because you can have a large church but unhealthy families. And the families is, is the greatest terrain of spiritual warfare today. Broken marriages, broken lives, broken families. When you have unhealthy families, no matter how large the church is, you have an unhealthy church. The second arena of warfare is the inner life. Discipleship is not about external behavioral modification. It's about our inner change, the core values transform in Christ. The third area of battle is the battle for truth. That is why I totally believe that the Word of God is foundational to discipleship. On Tuesday night, that's my message, the foundation of life and ministry in the light of God's Word. And, and then uh, on, on the following night, it will be on Paul's one statement, this one thing I do, and I want to explore with you what this one thing is and how do we do it well. But coming back to this battle for truth, we got to realize that the most important world we live in is the unseen world. And the most precious commodity in the unseen world is truth. And this truth is found in the revelation of God's Word. And that is why the battle of truth is the battle for Scriptures. The fourth area of this conflict, this area of, of the battleground is for transformation. If, if we do everything in discipleship but lives are not transformed, we are not engaged in a radical discipleship that Christ intends. Galatians 2.20 is one of the most important verses for discipleship today, and there are two major paradigm shifts 
I want to share with you with regards to this single verse. Paul highlights two important paradigm shifts for us. The first is moving from being committed Christians to being crucified ones. I am crucified with Christ, Paul says. In other words, it's living the distinct life. It has to do with identity. Our identity, not just on who we are, but more importantly, whose we are. The second paradigm shift is what we do from God, for God, shifted to what God has done for us. The first has to do with living the distinct life. The second has to do with living the devoted life. The first has to do with our identity in God. The second has to do with our indebtedness to God in what He has done for us. Let's examine this one at a time. The first, moving from being a committed Christian to being a crucified one. Notice the Greek word the Apostle Paul used, sunes taromai, I'm crucified with Christ. It's a compound word. It means I am co-crucified together in union with Christ. That identity, that union and communion with Christ is central to Paul's discipleship. In other words, we've got to realize that your relationship with God and my relationship with God defines us. Our relationship with God is the most important thing in our life. And the Apostle Paul describes it in one very profound word, crucified. Notice the Greek tense. I've been crucified with Christ. It is a past act with present results. And it's in the passive tense. In other words, crucifixion is not something you do yourself. It's something done to you. In, in the Roman days, uh, in the ancient Palestine, in the days of Christ, crucifixion is a Roman method of execution. You can't crucify yourself. You can't kneel yourself to the cross. It's something done to you. And Paul borrows this idea and says something exceedingly profound. He says, in the work of God, God does it so that our life is dead in Christ, but therefore we are alive. In him. It's the paradox. It's an irony of the Christian life. Now understand this, my dear friends. You cannot be just a little crucified. Either you are crucified or you're not. It's like being pregnant. Either you are pregnant or you are not. And so the question before us is are we living merely committed lives, being committed Christians? Or we crucified ones. An American missionary visited Romania and asked the Romanian pastor, why is your faith and your church in Romania under persecution so robust? Whereas in North America, we have solid and great Bible teaching, we have great churches, but our faith is shallow compared to yours. What's the difference? And immediately the Romanian pastor said, that's because in North America, you have substituted commitment for sacrifice, or rather, surrender for mere commitment. You get the idea? The church is asking for more commitment. Jesus is asking for crucified Christians living the crucified life. A huge difference. It's a day and night difference. It's as great a difference as bleeding and blood transfusion. 
I am crucified with Christ, the Apostle Paul says. This radical idea of a radical discipleship comes from a radical Messiah himself. However, herein lies the problem. We have lost that radical radicalness in discipleship today. We have to return to the Scriptures to realize that discipleship as defined by the Scriptures spells out absolute surrender to the total lordship of Jesus Christ in all arenas of our life. The church have compromised in that, but Jesus has never changed his standard. If any man come after me, he said, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. In other words, come and die. That's discipleship and it's a hard message, but we have lost the essence of the message. We have people thinking, I don't want this kind of discipleship. This is so regimental. Only you Asians can stand this kind of regimentation. We are Westerners. We have our freedom. We missed it. This kind of discipleship gives liberty and life and faith. We don't understand that this radical discipleship of G- to Jesus frees us. Frees us to the point that we realize discipleship, as Jesus defines it, is not a mere regimentation. Discipleship is a redemptive journey with Jesus. We have misunderstood the Great Commission. We define the Great Commission in Western thought as an assignment from God. It is, but we miss its essence. At the core of the Great Commission, at the heart of it, It's not merely an assignment from God. More importantly, the Great Commission is an alignment to God. In other words, the call of the kingdom is not to advance the kingdom. The first call of the kingdom is to abide in the king so that the kingdom might be advanced. We have ended up in the Western church Christian activists but we have missed this essence of abiding in Jesus, being transformed in our inner core values, therefore radically transforming inner life so that discipleship becomes a love relationship with Jesus. It's about falling in love with Jesus over again. It's about that redemptive journey with Jesus. Oh, this mighty transformation must change us. I have come to learn that the secret of discipleship is that surrender. Committed or crucified. George Mueller of Bristol is known as a man of faith and a man of prayer. One day, someone asked him for the secret of his prayer life and his faith. And George Mueller points to his diary, and this is what George Mueller said. You want to know the secret of faith? There was a day that George Mueller died. Died to his own agenda, died to his own will, died to his own preferences, died to his own wants. There was a day George Mueller died and Jesus lives within. That's the redemptive journey of discipleship. I have come to learn that the kingdom of God is not advanced by our strengths, it's advanced by our surrender. The Western church needs to realize that. 
Because with all our programs and Christian activism, we, we are not making very much headway for a simple reason. We have missed this call to surrender to Jesus in a radical discipleship, in a redemptive journey. Not by our strengths, but by our surrender. About 32 years ago, I was a first-year seminary Bible college student. Church member went on a holiday, lent me the car. I happily went to the airport to pick up a missionary from West Malay East Malaysia. As I was driving the car down to the highway, down the highway, the car broke down. I don't own a car. I, I don't know what to do. The missionary says, I know a Singaporean mechanic I could call. So we called for the mechanic. And as we waited for the mechanic to come, there was a very kind Indian lorry driver stopped his lorry asked what's wrong. I didn't know what's wrong. He checked for me the car and said, your battery. So he took the jumper wire and he charged up the battery. And as he was charging the battery, the Lord spoke to me, share the gospel with him. Now, I've been sharing the gospel in the university campuses with students and lecturers, and, and I'm at ease with philosophy and theology. But to share on the street with an Indian lorry truck driver, I don't know what to say. My heart was palpitating. I didn't realize that was spiritual warfare. I just went, I can't, I don't know what to say, I don't know how to start. By that time, he has finished uh, charging the battery. I said, thank you, God bless you. He went on his way. I was saddened in heart, but thankfully, the, the battery was charged up. So I went to switch off the car engine to save the battery. You car owners, you know you don't do that. You have to let the engine run to charge the battery. I don't know. So I switched it off. The car mechanic came. We waved him off. Everything is all right. I jumped into the car, started the engine. It doesn't start. Now I'm in trouble. What do I do? Surprisingly, the same lorry driver driving the same lorry made his delivery. He turned around. He was now on the other side of the highway. He stopped and he asked me, what's wrong? And now I'm the intelligent one. I was able to say the battery. <laughs> and across the highway, he did this, which to me was an international sign for stupid. <laughs> but this kind lorry driver took his huge battery and jumper cable, crossed the highway, and, and charge the battery for the second time. You know what this is called? Second chance, right? Now, here's the question. If you have a second chance to share the gospel, will you share the gospel? I dare not, and I did not. My heart went boom, 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 boom. And I knew the Spirit asked me to share the gospel, but I don't know how to start. I was paralyzed. I, I didn't know that that was spiritual warfare in those days. I was depending upon my strength, my strength failed me. By the time he finished, all I can say is, God bless you, thank you. He went on his way, and my world collapsed. I went back to the Bible college, and I was quitting Bible school. I was only a first-year Bible college student. I told my wife, I give up. I'm a failure. I'm unworthy. I've denied my Lord. I was given a second chance, and I blew it. So Anne prayed for me. She went to class. I refused to attend theological lectures and go to the school or the class. And I was moping around in the depression in my, in my apartment. 
And then the Lord spoke to me, son, go to the chapel, but I don't want to go to the chapel. Son, go to the chapel. So I pulled myself to the chapel behind, and that day they might have, I mean, they must have had a very humorous speaker. My classmates, the students were all laughing, but I was behind crying, literally crying. Tears were coming down my cheeks. I was going, Lord, I'm not worthy. I do not belong to this company of saints. I'm trying to be trained to be a pastor, but what's the use? I failed Jesus. I'm a failure. I'm unworthy. Lord, I give up. What do you bring me here for? And then the Lord spoke to me. I love you. I want to use you, and I can use you. I went like, Lord, if I'm God, I don't want to use Edmund Chan. He's a failure. Lord, you can't use me. I saw my own weaknesses in my face. And worse, I've denied my Lord. But son, I want to use you. And I can use you. So I didn't want to argue with God in my heart. I say, Lord, I, I will show you that it cannot be done. It's impossible. So here's what I'll do, Lord. After the chapel, I will cross the street from where the Bible college is. The first person I meet, I will share the gospel with. And I crossed the street. I was in my early 20s. And the first person I met was a middle-aged uh, Chinese woman. Now, you've got to understand, I'm English educated. Meaning, in school, in high school, my English have always got distinction. My Chinese have always failed. I'm embarrassed to say this. I am Chinese but I don't speak Mandarin very well. And so I went like, Lord, you have a sense of humor. I'm trying to show you it cannot be done. At least give me an Indian lorry driver to fail again. <laughs> Chinese, I, I, I can't. I, I don't know how to say. My Chinese is very limited, my Mandarin. So with a smattering of Mandarin and a little bit of the dialect Hokkien, the Chinese dialect, and perfect Oxford English. I combined all three and shared the gospel with, with this lady and asked her, I said to her, meaning you must believe in Jesus. Would you believe in Jesus? And then on the street she said, yes. I couldn't believe it. I looked up to heaven and I said to God, God, this is the worst gospel presentation in the history of the Christian church. And he uses it. Now my problem starts. Why? I don't know how to pray in Mandarin. So I said to her, turn, turn. wait a while, please follow me. I, bring her, I brought her to the Bible college and said to one of the students in the Chinese, uh, fac, uh, in the Chinese department, and the faculty, please share the gospel and, and, and please pray with her to receive Christ. And they did. I went back to my room and I cried. I said, Lord, you're an amazing God. I'm a failure. I'm unworthy. But Lord, I believe now you want to use me and you can use me. And that day, I learned the most important lesson in discipleship and serving as a minister of God. The kingdom of God is not advanced in our strength. It's advanced in our surrender. I am crucified with Christ, the Apostle Paul said. No wonder everywhere he went, either there's a riot or there's a revival, because this was a man totally sold out for Jesus. And the key is this. 
He said, it is no longer I who live, but Christ live in me. Oh, I pray for you that there is a definitive encounter with Jesus in your life, like in my life, where God changes us, where we can say from this day onwards, it's no longer I. George Muller defines the success of his Christian life and the power of his prayer life by these three words, no longer I. The Apostle Paul defines his ministry and the power of his ministry in the gospel of the kingdom in these three words, no longer I. And I pray that you walk out of this missionary conference, this mission conference with the understanding of these three words as the key to radical discipleship from today onwards is no longer I. No longer I who live but Christ who lives in me. Here's the question. Yes, but how? We want to live this kind of life. We want this kind of radicalness, but how? The answer is in the second paradigm shift we got to make in the light of this verse. In the second paradigm shift is from what we do for God to what God has done for us. In the Christian activism of the Western church today, the emphasis is on commitment and what you do for God. And what we miss is the cradle of what we do for God, cradled by what God has done for us. The advancing of the kingdom, cradled by the abiding in the King who made that difference for us. The Bible tells us that God loves us. The Christ who loved us and gave himself for us. He did not sacrifice a couple of angels for us. He loved us so much, he gave himself to die on the cross for us, our salvation. Now, here's a theological lesson I want to share with you, the theology of redemption in just four words. Four basic words that to me summarizes the entire theology of redemption in a nutshell. The first word, complete. If Jesus Christ came to me and said, Edmund Chan, I love you so much, I die on the cross for you. If you believe in me, all your past sins are forgiven. All your present sins are forgiven. But by midnight tonight, all your future sins, you are to take care of it yourself, I would tremble. Because there's nothing I could do to atone for my sins to be approved of God. It's impossible. But praise be to God, Jesus said, believe in me, all your past sins, all your present sins, and all your future sins, completely forgiven, covered by the blood of Jesus. The redemption of God, the salvation of God is complete. And here's the second incredible thing. It is eternal. If Jesus Christ came to me and said, Edmund Chan, I love you very much. I die on the cross for your sins. If you believe in me, then you'll come to heaven for a million years. I would tremble. Why? Because even if it were a trillion years, a trillion years is but a nanosecond in the light of eternity. And then forever and ever and ever, we are under the judgment of God. That would be terrifying. But praise be to God, Jesus declared in His Word, believe in me, you have eternal life. In other words, 
believe in me, it is for all eternity where all your sins are completely forgiven. If there's one word to define Edmund Chan, I told my wife, I said, and please remember this. I've said this in my discipleship conferences in different parts of the world. I say, if there's one word that defines my life, it is the word forgiven. So, so uh, remember, if I pass away, I just want one word that defines my life. It will be the date I'm born, the day I pass away, my name, and under it, bold, single word, forgiven. That defines me. And then my wife being Enchan, she said, okay, Edmund, when I die, I want my tombstone to be next beside yours, and I just want two words in my tombstone, by me. <laughs> okay, that, that's my wife. <clears throat> but you've got to understand that the forgiveness of God defines our entire life for all eternity. It is eternal. The third, that's the amazing thing. A salvation that is complete and that is free, uh, that is eternal, is free. There's nothing we could earn or deserve it granted to us by faith as a free gift of God. In other words, here's the impetus for global missions. Freely you have received, freely give. We have been blessed to be a blessing. It is a gift of God. But here's the fourth statement about the theology of redemption. It is costly. It costs the blood of Jesus Christ who died on the cross for us. Jesus is God. God died for us. You know what that means? It means God loves us so much, He's actually saying, I love you so much, I will rather die than live without you and he incarnated himself, sent his son to incarnate, and he died on the cross for us. Now, since we are thinking theologically, let me ask you a basic theological question. How many ways are there to heaven? One. According to the Bible, how many ways does God accept to be the way to heaven? Three, according to the Bible. Now, here's the question. Which Bible book is a book that is about, the entire book is about the theme of redemption, about salvation? New Testament written by the Apostle Paul, the book of Romans. Turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 2 and look at verse 6 and verse 7. Romans chapter 2, verse 6, verse 7. He, meaning God, will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honour and immortality, he will give eternal life. Good works acceptable by God. Look at verse 13. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. The word justified is a salvific word. It's the same word used in Romans 5.1, therefore being justified by faith, meaning the doers of the law, they will be saved. Now, in Paul's theology, the whole world is divided into two categories, the Jews and the non-Jews, the Gentiles. If you are the Jew, you have a law. And, and the Apostle Paul says in the doctrine of salvation, in the book of Romans, if you 
fulfill the law, if you do the law as a doer, you will be justified. He also said to those who are non-Jews, the Gentiles, you don't have the law, but if, if by your conscience you do good works, God accepts it, you'll be justified. There's only one problem. Because the Bible tells us in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, we are not able to fulfill God's condition in fulfilling the law or in doing good because God requires, the law says the minimum, He expects the maximum. And more importantly, it's not external outward behavior modification, it's an internal change within. We cannot fulfill that. Let me give you an example. I'm a Singaporean. I live near the equator. If I try to jump into the ocean and swim to Australia, no matter how good a swimmer I am, I could be an Olympic champion. I will never make it to Australia. The best I could do is to make it to Batam, Indonesia. But here's my point. The only way to get me to Australia, because there's no direct boat to sail from Singapore to Australia, the only way to get me to Australia is to take a flight to Australia. If I refuse to take the flight, it is not illegitimate to try to swim to Australia. The marine police would not stop me if I have my passport wrapped in plastic bag and I have it with me. It is not illegal to swim to Australia. The problem is I cannot make it. As far as God is concerned, if you can fulfill the law, He accepts it. If you can fulfill doing good works, He accepts it. The problem, we cannot do it. Please get this, people. There is zero way to heaven by the law or by good works. Zero. We cannot do it. There is no way to heaven. Then God sent His Son. When I share the gospel, I have non-Christians saying to me, how come you Christians are so narrow-minded? How can you believe there's only one way? I say, you got it wrong. The Bible says there are three ways, by the law or by good works, but we cannot fulfill it. So there's zero way to heaven, but God loves us so much, He made a way for us. So now the criticism is not, why is there only one way to heaven? The worship before God is, Lord, thank you. You have made the way in Jesus the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's what discipleship is all about. It's a redemptive journey in Jesus Christ. That's what God has done for us. We reduce discipleship to mere program. It's not a program. It's people who disciple people, not programs. The question is, what kind of people and what kind of disciples are we reproducing? I want to reproduce disciples who fall in love with Jesus over again, who understand it's not about living the committed life but the crucified life, that absolute surrender to God. We are afraid of surrender because we want to be in control, but control is an illusion. We don't really have control until we let go to the one who has full control. And when we surrender to God, it doesn't inhibit our freedom. It actually sets us free. And then we really begin to understand it is not about what we do for God and what we give up for God. It is what God has done for us and what He has given up for us. My time has caught up with me. Let me close with a true story. There's a Bible teacher by the name of F.B. Mayer 
wonderful British Bible teacher taught in the great Keswick Convention. And in the same Keswick Convention, CT started the missionary return from Africa to recruit missionaries. He has been missionary in China, in India, and Africa. I call CT Start the original CIA agent of God, China, India, and Africa. So when they found the great CT Start was in the missionary conference, they gave him 15 minutes to give a missionary report. Within 15 minutes, the power of God was in their midst, and, and the people were weeping with, with their hearts torn over the lostness of humanity and the need of the gospel to be preached to them. Abby Mayer was watching City Start, sharing his life and his conviction and the radicalness of his faith. At the tea break, uh, the C- Abby Mayer went to City Start and asked, what's the secret? What's the secret of your power? What's the secret of your spiritual vitality? And City Start says to Abby Mayer, have you given all your keys? What do you mean by all my keys? He says, well, in our hearts, there are compartments we open to God and there are compartments that are shut up. And there are compartments we shut it up and we padlock it and we keep the keys. God, don't touch this area of my life. And the great city star says, if you want God to use you mightily, open up all the compartments of your heart. Throw away the padlock. Open your heart to God in full surrender and give Him all your keys. In a moment of quietness, Abimeo went into the woods and he knelt before God and he prayed, Oh God, oh God, I surrender all the keys of my heart to you. And that day, Abimeo became not just a good Bible teacher, but a great Bible teacher because he understood that day what the Apostle Paul had been saying, I am crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Have you surrendered all your keys? I know of many people who are afraid too. That's because it's a lie of the evil one. Surrender sets you free. Surrender gives you the grace and the power of God in your life to live a discipleship that is beautifully radical in Christ Jesus. Would you bow with me in prayer? As we bow before the Lord, I'm conscious of the fact that every time the Scripture is open, God summons us. God summons us to a response. Today, for some of you, God may be speaking in your heart, give me all your keys. It is worth it. Jesus is worth it all. Give me all your keys, God says. And if you hear the Word of God and your heart hears it and you, you say to the Lord in response, Lord, No longer I this day, no longer I, but Christ. No longer my strength, but my surrender. Lord, I hand you the keys of my life. This day, Lord, no longer I, but Christ. If this is your response right now, where you are, would you lift up your hands? I want to pray for you. Right now, would you lift up your hands? I want to pray for you. Lord, no longer I, but Christ. Would you raise up your hand? Let me pray for you. Yes, there are many of you. Anyone else? Anyone else? Oh, Heavenly Father, I pray for all the hands representing all the hearts lifted up to you. This day, no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me.
do that radical shift in our life so that we are learning not just to be committed Christians but crucified ones because we learn the secret of not just what we do for God but more importantly what God has done for us so Father God take our commitments this day and work your deep work in our hearts that we might truly abide in the King that the kingdom might be advanced that we might learn the secret of building to last we thank you in Jesus name Amen Beloved church, I had been wondering after meeting Pastor Edmund how it was that the Lord put it on his heart to come to Calvary with so many invitations. And it is in the hearing of that message that I understand. This is a tremendous, gracious gift of God to us in that we want to be a disciple-making church, a passionate disciple-making church. And this was the word to move us forward in what God has placed in our hearts already. He comes from a part of the world where people are coming to Christ in the thousands and tens of thousands. A phenomenon nothing like anything we know here in North America. In North America, we're just trading Christians from church to church. We're not making any real net gain in the kingdom. That's the reality. Because we have committed Christians who are moving around as consumers of church goods and services, trying to build churches on our own strength. And God is saying, have at it. But it's not going to accomplish very much. This is a critical word to us from God. And I trust that we will put it deep within our hearts and it will move our lives. To go from committed to crucified is entirely different. From strength to surrender. This is God's word to us, Galatians 2.20. This is a true interpretation and presentation of that text. And I thank you so much for coming to our church and sharing this with us. Our Father and our God, may it be so of us, not I, but Christ. May we move past committed to crucified, not doing something ourselves because it is all of you, but may we truly surrender our lives to you, O God. Give over every key to our heart. No more compartments. They're all yours. That we may truly live out the disciple life and see disciples being made. Oh, Father, I pray that you would visit us. Now you've visited us with this message out of your grace, from your servant, from a place in the world that is validating this is true to a place in the world that's been stalled oh God and we're frustrated but you've opened up the truth to us so Lord would we follow through with our raised hands Lord my hand is up our, all, our hands are up 
Not I, but Christ. Not Rick, but Christ. And I pray this and ask this because of your grace, for Jesus' sake.